have worked very often with traditional people and very often people don't need someone like me where my main tool is my prescription pad. Sometimes people just need someone there, someone like an elder or a healer who can really understand where they're coming from, have compassion and work from our principles. That's Dr. Evan Adams, Deputy Chief Medical Officer at Indigenous Services Canada. He's our guest on this episode of Minobamadzwan, a podcast brought to you by the Thunderbird Partnership Foundation. I'm your host, Sherry Huff, a former reporter and producer at CBC Radio and a proud member of El Napawi Lakawit, the home of the Lenape. Today, I work for Thunderbird, managing communications and hosting this podcast. Menobamadzwan means living the good life in the language of the Anishinaabe. We chose that as a name for a podcast because it captures what we all hope for. This podcast aims to seek and share insight about addictions and mental health issues that many of our families and communities are dealing with. We're going to be fearless and have thoughtful and informative conversations with some of the leading voices in Indigenous wellness. Before we get to today's guest, I want to take a moment to tell you about our new Thunderbird Wellness app. It takes a cultural approach to support health and wellness for First Nations. It's grounded in Indigenous knowledge and ways of knowing, connecting with our inherent strengths to support a return to wellness, to live a good life. Minobamadzuan. Well, we're really thrilled to have our guest on the podcast today. For many of you, Dr. Evan Adams is a familiar face and voice from his days before he began practicing medicine, especially for his beloved role in the hit 1998 film Smoke Signals, playing a character with a very specific catchphrase. Hey, Victor! What about your dad? These days, Dr. Evan Adams is the Deputy Chief Medical Officer for Indigenous Services Canada. Prior to that, he was Chief Medical Officer with the First Nations Health Authority in British Columbia. He's also a Coast Salish physician and a proud member of the Tlaman First Nation near Powell River, BC. Welcome to Minobamadzuan. Hi, Sherry. Thank you for that great introduction. That was lovely. I do want to ask you about smoke signals before we dive into the interview. How often does someone come up to you and say, hey, Victor, and do you ever get tired of it? (laughs) I get get asked that (laughs) almost every day uh, for the last uh, 20 years. And I I think probably, uh, you know, six months in, I was pretty tired of hearing it. But probably by the two-year mark, I thought, well, I'm I'm probably going to have to live with this. It actually now surprises me that people even remember the movie. It has been uh, more than 20 years. But what's really funny to me is people remember me as an actor, as Thomas, and not as a doctor. Because, of course, now, I, especially now with the pandemic, uh, I've been, uh, you know, doing a lot of um, health work. But people go, oh, that actor. <laughs> <laughs> well, like you said, there's, there's, there are probably worse things to be remembered for. And uh, I know that uh, that your character Thomas was uh, was uh, it, it found its way into many of our hearts, and including mine. I'm a big fan of yours. But we are here to talk about your role um, as as a uh, physician and your work uh, with the First Nations Health Authority in BC, and now with Indigenous Services Canada. So let's let's talk first about the First Nations Health Authority. Um, I know that back when when COVID uh, first hit. Um, 
The First Nations Health Authority in BC won a lot of praise for its work, especially in getting vaccines rolled out to even the most remote communities ahead of much of Canada. What do you think is the secret to that success? Yeah, BC uh, First Nations have a very unique situation in that they took over um, some of the federal responsibilities for health and it went under First Nations governance. So uh, First Nations and Inuit Health Branch, formerly a federal health entity, um, went under the chiefs and became a First Nations health organization that was then responsive to First Nations people. So they had been organizing themselves how to hear the people how to uh, streamline and get efficiencies. Uh, so, and uh, and uh, they had, we, I was there at the time, we had gone through H1N1, and that was like a really important uh, exercise for us. So, so we feel like we had cut our teeth. We, we were, we were organized and probably in some other places, they, they, they weren't, uh, they didn't have their pipeline. I know we hate saying the word pipeline, but they didn't have their pipeline quite worked out the way that they had uh, amongst BC First Nations. So good for them. But I feel like a lot of our people really stepped up to try and help um, others during the pandemic. Is there a way that 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 what worked in, in British Columbia with the First Nations Health Authority can be replicated in other places in, in Canada? I know a lot of a lot of different um, First Nations wish they had what what they have in, in British Columbia with the support of the FNHA. Uh, COVID showed us that um, when there needs to be very fast cooperation between the federal government, provincial government, um, healthcare workers, health authorities um, on the ground, uh, immunizers and, and uh, distribution, coordinating with hospitals, hospitals were transforming to receive patients. It was quite a large effort, and what we found was uh, those who already had been establishing relationships, who had already um, made friends with each other, because it's actually easy to not get along uh, with each other. So uh, in BC, I think they had been coordinating, and they already had FPTI tables, we call them, federal, uh, provincial, or territorial, federal, provincial, indigenous tables, where these kinds of issues, not exactly were being discussed, but very close to being discussed. And so the FNHA, for instance, advocated very early on and said, well, First Nations people have a very special kind of risk uh, to COVID. So maybe they should be one of the first to receive the vaccine. And so they stated that quite early and many of the other First Nations across the country did exactly the same thing. So it was really um, the fact that you had already established those good working relationships. And we know that relationship is so very important in our culture and in Indigenous culture, you know, relationship with family, relationship with community and learning. Like you said, it's easy not to get along. It takes work to actually get along and to build those relationships. So you already had the framework, I guess, when the pandemic hit. Yes, that's right. So uh, in some provinces and territories, and I'm not sure why, they're not accustomed to meeting with uh, indigenous leadership. I think uh, that's very short-sighted. And in uh, BC, I think, and I, well, I was with the provincial government for a long time, uh, we knew uh, it was essential for us to um, be good neighbors and uh, good friends, that if we spent our time fighting, even something as small as a little town and a little reserve fighting over um, the lake and its uh, fresh drinking water, 
you know, could uh, just destroy people instead of saying, well, let's share the water and let's get to the next issue. What's the next issue? And of course, there are hundreds of things like transportation and education and the hospital system that all need uh, a lot of help. So anyway, if indigenous people are at the table, then uh, a lot of those issues can get dealt with um, in a faster way instead of being in a worldwide uh, emergency uh, and the province is suddenly meeting with chiefs for the first time and they absolutely have no idea who's who or um, who to speak to about what or, um, you know, even um, the language of First Nations. They just, you know, sometimes if they hadn't met before, they were just learning that. And and that's that's a problem. I think any anyone who's not meeting with Indigenous people is really behind the times. So now that you're with Indigenous Services Canada and you, you have that federal view, we know here at Thunderbird what's hitting a lot of our communities is the opioid and methamphetamine crisis. And I'd just like to ask you, what do you see from your vantage point as the major impact of these two substances uh, in our communities? Oh, gosh. We have identified um, opioids as a profound problem for Indigenous peoples, particularly First Nations peoples in urban areas, uh, for many years now. Uh, since 2016, I would say, uh, yeah. Um, in some parts of Canada, they were de- declaring emergencies because they were seeing so many deaths that were preventable. And so if those were preventable, then Um, surely there must be something that we could do. And that meant organizing quite a number of people to do that. And of course, of course, opioid use is related to a number of things, Uh, access to uh, services. It's related to um, uh, where people live, uh, because we saw we were seeing overdose deaths in particular parts of the country and not in other parts of the country, like in in, uh, urban areas. We knew it was related to mental health. And uh, in the midst of all that, while we were trying to deal with um, these overdose deaths and trying to sort um, whether these were intentional, accidental, which of them were like, you could call them like a toxic drug supply, a poisonous uh, drug supply, uh, we were uh, starting to hear around crystal meth, that this was something that was being used frequently. It had a very different uh, profile than... Uh, opioids, uh, that it was happening a lot in our communities, and that it was unusual. It was different than, say, um, alcohol use or abuse or um, alcohol dependence. And so we had to um, really scramble and look at, you know, what are the uh, ways that we can give therapies and help to people. And a a lot of um, uh, crystal meth work is around um, psychological counseling and behavior management, and then dealing with a lot of the uh, the issues that, that then come up because of this long-term use. It really did require quite a high level of care um, and intervention. So, yeah, so these were happening, and then COVID hit, and that really complicated and exacerbated things, for sure. It's kind of like a perfect storm. I'm not sure if I would say that it was a perfect storm in that... Um, Things can always get worse. There could be a worse storm. This is a pretty bad storm. I'm not saying that it wasn't a a perfect storm. I'm just saying, yeah, it was quite a storm. A lot of things uh, came together that were really actually unimaginable. And it's still quite surprising, um, the width and breadth of the problem. I would say 
we're not getting a really great um, handle on it. We're still seeing a lot of morbidity and mortality. But I also know that we have uh, prevented uh, a lot of injuries and, and death by, by our care. It's just such a large problem, and I think for many of us it's quite hard to understand. With that being said, what more do you think needs to be done to, to tackle it? Well, some of my ideas uh, are not considered uh, radical in my work. For instance, uh, something called harm reduction, which is, uh, you know, some people would say, oh, they just have to stop. We should make them stop. We should put them in jail and not let them use and let them go cold turkey. And this is bad for us. So why don't we just find all the drugs we can and burn it and, and get rid of drug dealers and that that kind of thing. But what we found is that um, if people are addicted and they want to use and they don't want to stop, um, they're going to find a way. And so if hundreds of people in the country are dying every year from usage, why don't we help them with their usage so they can use and not die? That's harm reduction. And for, for many of us, that is... Um, unpalatable. Uh, so it's not uncommon for us to hear from traditional people or from uh, chiefs who say, uh, why are you helping addicts uh, get a clean supply of drugs? It's still drugs. They're still using drugs. And uh, why are you spending so much time over there? There's lots of things that you could be working on um, health-wise. So, uh, you know, so we're trying to help, but we're also getting... Um, I don't know, is the peanut gallery pejorative or, or not? Uh, as you see it in COVID, um, you know, just regular folks saying, what are you doing over there? Like, you explain it to me. It's like, uh, we're trying to work over here. <laughs> we're trying to save lives over here. <laughs> but uh, yeah, anyway, I am, I am glad to uh, kind of go into it a bit more and help people understand exactly, um, particularly the, the horror and the difficulty of these particular issues. Well, let's dive into it a bit there. I'd like to know what, what do you say to chiefs and, and, to, and to others, you know, who, who, who do think that this is just, you know, swapping out one, one drug for another, um, who don't accept um, any of the principles behind harm reduction, which is all about reducing the harms and keeping people alive. What do you say to them? Yeah, it's difficult, I know. Uh, first, first of all, for some people, it's difficult to have compassion it's like uh, some people think, well, that's a choice. They're doing bad things. Those are bad people doing bad things. Um, why don't you just leave them to what they've um, chosen? Uh, and so um, my, a part of my initial work in working with a family is to have uh, uh, to talk about compassion. You know, this is this is your loved one. And I know that they're, they have probably made you tired. But can you live with... Um, leaving them right now, uh, just as we're verging on, on helping them. And it's an important question because um, for some people, they're done. They, they just, there's no, no gas left in the tank. They, they can't do any more for um, this, this person who's not well. And then for others, they say, okay, uh, let's do this. Uh, and then I have to explain to them, try not to be invested in the outcome. Try and love them no matter uh, what happens because they may fail. Um, they may continue to use or they may not taper off the drug use as fast as you would like. Or maybe they won't take up some of the responsibilities that you think that they should take up. But it, 
um, walking with someone when they're not well really is sacred work, but it's it's difficult. And so um, you just try and help people along and say, yeah, this is a tough case. Um, these are really um, difficult issues issues to tackle. Um, do what you can. I'm here, and there are lots of us here who are um, uh, ready to help. So that's that's just kind of priming the ground, let alone dealing with, you know, lots of complex issues like um, return to treatment and going into residential care. And uh, for some people, um, they set up a taper or they set up a, a, a methadone program where they stabilize their opioid use. They actually get it from the pharmacy. Oh, and other things like relapse can and does uh, happen. And so when those occur, um, there are also other ways to protect them. So like, for instance, when some people um, start to taper, uh, if they start to fail, they can use the amount that they used to use, except um, they don't have the same kind of tolerance. And it's very easy for them to overdose. So when someone's trying to get better is when they're most at risk for um, overdosing. Uh, so that's so that really is a thing. So you need to watch them carefully, and and hopefully you have enough trust. Uh, they have enough trust in you. They can talk to you about. Uh, um, you know, they feel like they're going to be using again, or they're using again. Uh, and can you stand nearby? Because really, what we're seeing is as well. People overdose when they're alone. If people can use uh, near others then those other people can call for help if someone is um, is overdosing. And that, again, is really a thing. Imagine being able to go to a place where someone can observe you, a health professional like me can observe you and watch you while you're using to make sure that, um, uh, well, essentially that you won't overdose and die. Uh, we can try and protect you. And if you do, you're, you're standing at the ready you know, with, with supports, whether it's an naloxone kit or, and or calling 911, right? If our only work, if we were only helping people when they were moments from death, that would be wrong. And so part of the work mm -hmm. is then getting wraparound services for people so that, let's say, in the mornings when they're not using, um, they have help with things like housing. Women who use are so often exploited by men, it's terrible, and they should be protected. And so there are programs that protect women who use. There are other things that can happen uh, when people are using, uh, you know, life happens, pregnancy, cancer, things can happen in their relationships and they need support through uh, all of those. And so those wraparound services to help people not, not just uh, giving them naloxone as they're overdosing um, sh should be in place. And, and definitely um, the provincial government and the federal government and the local health authorities and First Nations themselves very often um, offer those kinds of support. And of course, um, another part of the work is our, our treatment centers where um, people can go into residential care and um, uh, face, uh, uh, you know, face uh, what the next step in their lives might be. You talked about, you know, laying the sacred foundation, drawing from compassion and in, in our way of being and our way of knowing to support people. I, I wanted to ask you, um, what role do you do you see uh, traditional medicines and ceremonies and practices playing in our health services? Hmm. I have worked very often with traditional people, and very often people don't need 
someone like me, where my main tool is my prescription pad, is pills, maybe that's not all that people need. Maybe they need a confidant. Maybe they need someone who can help them explore past trauma or some of the things that are bothering people that get in the way of their wellness. Sometimes people just uh, need someone there, not someone like me who has a set idea of what you should do if you're using, but someone like an elder or a healer um, who can really understand where they're coming from, uh, have compassion, and work from our principles of kindness, respect, being on the land, culture, family, and those can be brought up in a way that I can't bring up as a Western professional. Sometimes when people are in crisis, they just need love. They need a hug and uh, they need someone to hear them in a different way um, than, than how they would speak to a, a medical health uh, professional. Things like taking someone on the land and reminding them of the beauty of the world, peacefulness, uh, um, reminding them of their own resilience. And even things like when you're out on the land, you are humbled. Uh, you are reminded how small you are. Um, and you're reminded of, um, you know, maybe things you did in your youth. And it's another kind of connection. Very often the way we live, I think, the way we live in the city, uh, we are disconnected. We are disconnected from the natural world the world. We're disconnected from the world. We live in this really weird reality. I call it living in a shoebox. You know, for so many of us, that is not the right thing. Uh, we need to open the doors and go outside. And, and, and so that's just like one example of a traditional approach, one traditional approach to try and help people who are using. When you talk about opening the doors, and, and, and I know that, that a lot of your, your work has been really looking at um, kind of systemic changes. I know that, you know, in the healthcare system, we, we hear about Chinese medicine, um, acupuncture um, being pretty well integrated into the mainstream health system. What do you think it's going to take uh, before Indigenous health practices get that same level of recognition by the, by the health, health system? Yeah, there's a lot of transformation that I think needs to happen within our system. But let's start with some ideas like uh, centering Indigenous reality. So asking the Indigenous client or their family or asking a community, how do you want to do this? And then uh, taking it seriously, where Indigenous realities can stand with Western realities and they're in partnership. I feel like, and I know this is going to maybe offend some people, sometimes there is a white supremacy, like the white way or the Western way of doing things or seeing things is pronounced as being more important. The only way. Yeah, it's the only way. And it's, it's not necessarily. And that there are so many parts of our realities, like our colonial inheritance, like trauma from residential schools, from racism, from classism, from being impoverished to the lack of beauty when we don't have access to our language and a culture, our own views on what is a good life, what is a strong person, what is a good person, you know, those are not necessarily front 
and center when we're not well. So I think those indigenous realities need to be accepted and actualized in order for us to really approach this in a good way. So Western medicine is great and it's had a certain effect. And now it's time to add our own realities. I know when I was growing up, I had lots of teachings about how to be well. And I would love if those could be present um, within the Western health system. I understand you're running to be president of the Canadian Medical Association. What would your main priorities be in that role? It was really a journey to accept that I could run for this kind of national level position. I feel like sometimes the stars of uh, Western science or Western arts are Western people and we're the outsiders. I could easily have continued to view myself as an outsider, but um, one of my buddies, uh, an Indigenous physician, said, look at your resume. Your resume is as good as you know that person and that person and that person who might be running as well. You can do this. And they said, uh, you've worked nationally, you've worked provincially, you've worked at a, a health authority uh, level, you've been trying to make change for Indigenous peoples, maybe you could make change for, for doctors. And uh, I thought about it, and I know that there are lots of things, uh, you know, doctors are really tired. We were asked to go the extra mile to save the day during the pandemic. Health care has changed forever because of COVID, and so our profession has to change. And also, I want our workplaces to be less patriarchal. I want them to be more inclusive. I want them to talk about uh, reconciliation and Indigenous leadership and our way of doing things. This is Canada. Canada has Indigenous roots. Indigenous people should be core to how the country sees itself. So I'm hoping to bring all of that to this kind of role. And the Canadian Medical Association just doesn't look at doctors. The Canadian Medical Association is supposed to look at the health of Canadians. And I have lots of ideas about how to transform the system. That's uh, all I've been doing for the last uh, 15 years is uh, system health system transformations. I, I really do feel like I'm the best person for the job. Let me lead. And it's not because I want a fancy title, because uh, in our view, uh, our way, in my home, leadership is being a humble servant and you hold others up. It's really hard work and someone has to lead. <laughs> it's like being on a soccer team. Uh, one of us has to be the captain. Who's it gonna okay, I'll I'll do it. <laughs> so I'm I'm putting my hand up. <laughs> I'll pass you the ball so you can score. Right? <laughs> I'll pass you the ball and you can score and I'll make you run your drills and I'll listen to you after the game as you cry about what happened to the game. <laughs> we'll try and have some fun. We'll make this league the best league ever. <laughs> That's right. So at the at the end of the day, Dr. Adams, you know, looking at your work um, and 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 all of that you do, um, it brings me to my final question that I like to ask all our guests here on Minobamadzwin, and that is, what brings you hope? Well, I know that there's the usual answer of young people uh, bring me hope. Um, I um, I like to think about allies because I'm trying to learn how to uh, help allies. Having worked for the First Nations Health Authority, we tried to hire as many First Nations people as we could. And the highest we got to was just over 35%. In our organizations, in our world, we're always going to have non-Indigenous people 
and uh, you've probably seen, and the listeners have probably seen, extraordinary non-Indigenous people who stood with us, beautiful souls, so smart and brave and strong, who, who um, understand our struggle and really want to help. Of course, we've seen the opposite too, the ones who are kind of useless and, you know, mean-spirited to us and have no idea who we are and they don't see us. But I want to think about those allies who um, stand with us, just like um, I like to think of myself as a feminist. I really want to uh, promote young women, young women in leadership, young Indigenous women in medicine. I can be a good ally at the same time as saying, I really have no idea about what it's like to live as a woman. Of course I don't. But my sisters, I love them and I hate this sexist world and I, I will help uh, to make things a, a little bit better for them. So let's be a good ally. <laughs> Thank you so much. So let's be a good ally. Yes. Good parting thoughts and, and definitely um, a lot of hope for the future. Dr. Evan Adams, thanks so much for joining me here on Minobamadzwin. Thank you for the most amazing conversation. Uh, I'm so glad you're there um, speaking to Indigenous peoples and bringing our realities uh, into the light. Anishik. And thank you for everyone listening today. If you like this podcast, please rate it and offer a review where you can listen. It helps us to connect with more listeners. Also, don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. For more information on the work of Thunderbird Partnership Foundation, please visit our website at thunderbirdpf.org. And be sure to follow us on social media. You can search for us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at ThunderbirdPF. Lapi Anishik, thanks again for listening. Until next time, I'm Sherry Huff.